No worries, thank you. Um, so, my name is Professor Armenia Ishkhanian, and I am a professor in social policy, but currently also convent to the International Inequalities Institute, where I am the, so, um, the executive director of the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program. Um, and my research looks at different forms of civil society actors and how they engage in policy processes, but also political and social transformation. And um, in, in, in this context, I've, and I've also done research in the past on the Armenian diaspora and how Armenian diaspora communities relate to the homeland and different kinds of politics. So I was really happy when I was invited to um, chair this event and to be able to be part of this um, discussion. So um, before I introduce our speaker, I just want to let everyone know that this event is being recorded and that um, photographs will be taken, pictures are being taken, I think Nadine is, is there. Um, we have copies of Professor Al-Rashid's paper in the back, so please help yourself to that. And um, you're also um, other papers that are available to download on the Middle East Center's website. So now I'm going to introduce our speaker. And um, I think you're going to speak for about half an hour or so, and then we'll have um, an opportunity for Q&A. So our speaker, Professor Madawi Al-Rashid, is visiting professor at the LSE Middle East Center and a fellow of the British Academy. Since joining the center, she has been conducting research on mutations among Saudi Islamists after the 2011 Arab uprisings. This research focuses on the new reinterpretations of Islamic texts prevalent among a small minority of Saudi reformers and the activism in the pursuit of democratic governance and civil society. The result of this research project, sponsored by the Open Society Foundation Fellowship Program, appeared in a monograph titled Muted Modernists, published by Hearst Oxford University Press in 2015. Her latest books are Salman's Legacy, The Dilemmas of a New Era, also published by OUP in 2018, and The Sun King, Reform, Sun as an S-O-N, um, Reform and Repression in Saudi Arabia, published in 2020. Um, so the title of her talk today is A New Diaspora of Saudi Exiles, Challenging repression from abroad. So over to you. Thank you. I'm honored to, to have this session chaired by such a, a prominent scholar. Uh, and thank you for the Middle Center for having me for almost 10 years now and for organizing uh, this event. Thanks, Nadia. <coughs> um, yes, um, what I'm going to talk about is really a brief um, uh, discussion of the findings and the methodology and the findings of this short paper. Uh, the full story is in the book that uh, uh, was just mentioned, uh, The Sun King. Um, there's quite a, a long discussion of uh, exile politics and exiles there. Uh, but in this specific talk, um, I want to uh, look at a very unusual phenomenon. Uh, Saudi Arabia is a country associated with uh, inward migration. Since the discovery of oil um, in the 1930s and its export in the 1940s, the country had been uh, host to, uh, I would say, uh, millions 
of foreign workers who come to Saudi Arabia to seek employment, mainly in the oil um, sector and also in other sectors of the economy. And despite um, you know, um, more than half a century of uh, Saudization program, the country is still dependent on foreign labor. Uh, so nobody associates Saudi Arabia with um, political migration or exiles. That is, people who are forced to leave the country for political reasons. But uh, if you look at the history of, of Saudi Arabia, and I don't want to go far, uh, just probably from the 18th century, we find that uh, Saudi Arabia has actually uh, exported migrants. Um, and uh, in the sense that they were both economic and political migrants. Uh, so the 18th century, as you know, the, uh, the country is in the arid zone. It does not have a lot of resources. And these were push factors that uh, um, uh, made many people seek travel abroad uh, in the pursuit of a livelihood. There were Saudi merchants in Bombay as it was called at the time. They communicated with Basra in Iraq, in Zubair, there was a community of Central Arabian Najdi uh, merchants who established themselves. Even in some records, we find that some Saudis had actually participated in the construction of the Suez Canal in the 19th century as laborers. Um, Another factor, in addition to this sort of uh, very limited economic resources in the free oil era, there was the push uh, for leaving the country under uh, political circumstances. And this is associated with the rise of the Wahhabi movement in Arabia in the middle of the 18th century when uh, wars started uh, being launched against anybody who did not succumb to the Wahhabi uh, movement, which is a religious tradition uh, indigenous to Saudi Arabia that became the religion of the state. So many tribal groups, especially in the north of the country, left uh, to Iraq and Syria. And this is why we have certain tribal communities, for example, in the Syrian uh, Al Jazeera in the desert, uh, who originate from Saudi Arabia, for example, the Shamma tribe, the Aneza tribe, and so many others who went as far as Mosul in Iraq and settled there in an attempt to, to escape the pressure of the Wahhabi movement. So these were the traditional patterns of migration that is either uh, related to economic factors or political factors. But we come to the modern history of Saudi Arabia, especially from the 1930s onward, um, and we find that the country also produced exiles or political, uh, uh, my, uh, political asylum seekers. Uh, from the 1950s uh, to the 1990s, there were waves of migration, of uh, exile. People left uh, in the 1950s and 60s and those were specifically belonging to political parties that were so common in the Arab world. So for example, communists, socialists, anti-imperialists, uh, nationalists. And these were uh, leaving the country because they could not actually uh, uh, have any kind of freedom to uh, mobilize in the country. And the destination of those ideologically committed people 
uh, where uh, the usual uh, capitals of the Arab world at the time, mainly Cairo, Damascus, Amman, Baghdad, um, and some of them went to Yemen. So uh, th th this wave was uh, specific in the sense that it was associated with the uh, currents that were predominant in the Arab world, whether it is uh, anti-imperialist rhetoric, nationalists, leftists, and many others. Then we come to the 1990s, and there was a critical shift in, in that moment, simply because the exiles became Islamist. And from the 1990s, we have Islamism in Saudi Arabia sort of exploding in the face of, of the authorities, um, and there was a wave of repression. Um, I don't want to go into details why and how, but we find that waves of uh, Islamists started leaving the country. Quite a lot of them settled in uh, the countries that uh, were held responsible for their uh, plight, mainly Western countries. So we find uh, many Islamists settled in North London, uh, in the USA, and um, some of them had actually traveled as far as uh, Indonesia or Malaysia to seek asylum. Um, so in the majority of these previous political waves of, of political migration, um, the, the uh, outlook and the cohort of the exiles was specific. Until uh, uh, we come to 2011, and that was a critical moment that um, actually uh, changed the, uh, the face of Saudi exiles. In the previous eras, we find that there was a kind of ideological coherence. So you have the, the leftists leaving and settling in Lebanon, and the Nasserites, the Arab nationalists, going to Cairo. Uh, others went to Baghdad, who had like Baathist uh, uh, inclinations. Uh, others stayed in Amman. Um, and they were all sort of ideologically coherent. Um, including the wave that came in the 1990s, whereby we find a spectrum of Islamism, uh, of Islamists who came to uh, seek asylum uh, abroad. But 2011 uh, changed the landscape of Saudi diaspora, in the sense that from that moment, we find uh, specific groups that belong to different ideological orientations and ideas. So we have the Islamists, we have the leftists, we have liberals, we have feminists, uh, and we have non-ideologically committed people who happen to find themselves in a situation of repression and seek asylum abroad. And uh, I'm really happy to see some of the faces of the people I uh, interviewed for my work uh, the exiles themselves here, and it's very unusual uh, to give a talk when they are present, and I hope they could challenge me if I got it wrong. Uh, first, I want to extend a thank you for the people who are here, who have helped me write their life stories and uh, intrude into the privacy of, the, of their lives. I was really honored, and I appreciated the trust that you put in me. Um, so, 2011, we get to the situation of the Arab uprisings, and uh, that year, Saudi Arabia had quite a lot of students on government scholarships studying abroad in the US, <coughs> in Canada, in the, U in the UK, and Australia. 
Um, obviously, as young uh, students, they got uh, excited about the Arab uprising, about the prospect of democracy. And uh, they started tweeting, using social media, uh, or engaging in some kind of activism that uh, led to the authorities uh, focusing on these individuals and asking them to come to the embassy or informing them that they have to be, uh, they, they are on a blacklist, uh, their scholarship is suspended, and they found themselves without a sponsor uh, in the middle of their education. Uh, and that led to many of them continuing um, uh, their activism, simply because there was no return. If they returned home, there was repression, there was prison sentences passed on them. Some of them would have passports that are still valid, and when the passport expires, they go to the embassy. And going to the embassy, as we all know, is not an easy and safe uh, trip that a Saudi uh, who is active or who uses social media uh, would do without fear. At the time, they would ask, the embassy staff would ask them to go back to Saudi Arabia, especially in the cases of those suspicious people, the people who had been active. And from that moment, they realized they can't go back, they become stateless without a passport, then they apply for asylum. Now, I'm sure in your mind you want to ask me, how many people are we talking about? This is an impossible question to answer. I tried my best to find statistics, but from local sources, from host countries, for example, the US, or from uh, uh, Britain, Australia, and other places, there is always a time when People are exiles, but they're not exiles, in the sense that they may still have a Saudi passport and they would not apply for asylum because their host country would just simply send them back if they have a valid passport. Some of them would have no passport, but they wait until the right moment or the right information and the right support becomes available and um, uh, apply. So it's very difficult to know exactly what we are who we are talking about and how many. But there was an unpublished uh, report that was commissioned by the Crown Prince, Hamad bin Salman, um, to find out uh, how many Saudi exiles should he expect in the future. And according to this unpublished report, um, which I quoted in, in, in the book, um, he, they expect that by year 2025, there'll be 50,000 Saudi exiles. Uh, they are scattered around many countries. They are not grouped in, in one particular um, uh, region or, or Western country. Uh, not to mention also the ones who are in Arab countries, and their situation is pretty precarious because of several incidents when host countries would simply hand them over to Saudi Arabia. And this had happened in many countries, for example, in Jordan, in Egypt, in Morocco, in the United Arab Emirates. And basically all of the Gulf area is a no-go area for uh, Saudi exiles because they had signed a, 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 a security treaty whereby a country could actually have its own citizen if he is uh, charged in, in Saudi Arabia without any kind of open judiciary or uh, 
fair trial. So the, the situation from 2011 started uh, becoming extremely uh, uh, difficult for exiles, and we find that also women uh, started joining this uh, uh, mass of exiles, which is actually the first time that Saudi women leave the country seeking asylum. Uh, in the past, uh, especially in, before 2014, many Saudi women would go to Gulf countries seeking employment in Qatar, in Kuwait, as teachers or, or professionals. But to seek asylum for a Saudi woman is extremely difficult, uh, socially, culturally, and also uh, the, 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 the logistics of it, given that they cannot leave the country at the time without the permission of their guardian. They cannot actually have a passport without the guardian uh, signing all the forms. So we get to a situation whereby uh, Saudi women become what is called the runaway girls. And uh, this uh, phenomenon started, um, uh, you know, it's a 21st century uh, phenomenon um, that, that uh, drew the attention to the plight of women in the country. So when I started my research, I was puzzled by a sort of uh, interesting uh, contradiction. Uh, from 2017, we have a crown prince who's young, who never misses an opportunity to demonstrate and show his youth and how he is serving the youth. He is providing important opportunities, changing the country, liberalizing the social sphere, allowing women to go to football matches, apply for passports, stay in a hotel without a guardian, travel, uh, seek employment. Uh, young men are promised a new uh, social life, liberalization, concerts, football, etc. I'm sure you know now that the country has changed a lot. But at the same time, I was finding that a lot of young people are leaving the country. Those are the target of the reforms, or the so-called reforms of Hamad bin Salman. So that triggered my interest in pursuing this research and finding out why people, young people of all political persuasions are leaving the country, while the news and the media tell us that the youth are enjoying this infitah, this openness and liberalization. So my study uh, looks at, um, at, at, at what they do when they arrive in London or in Washington or Canada or Australia. And so I, I inter my, my base of information is the interviews that I conduct, conducted across these different countries with people either in person or by Skype or Zoom, etc. And I found that uh, the Saudi case of this latest wave of exile reminds me, and I do a bit of comparison in the paper, with Iranian exile in the 1960s and the Iraqis who came the Iraqis have a long history of migration, of political migration. Uh, but uh, in terms of the composition of this uh, population of exile, they're very similar to the uh, Iranians who came in the 60s. They were students, some of them were leftists, others were socialists, nationalists, but they were suffering from severe repression under the Shah regime. There were students in Europe, uh, mainly Germany, France, and then later the USA, uh, and they started mobilizing. 
they are uh, they were uh, more into political parties and mobilized in order to put pressure on the Shah at the time. Then we get to the Iraqi uh, um, exiles, and they are very diverse. Uh, there were Arabs, Kurds, Christians, um, uh, Islamists, communists. So I, I only did some research on the London group and discovered that they are so diverse. Uh, the sectarian element was evident in the 1990s that each community would maintain its own sectarian identity, its own institutions in exile. And they hardly came together. Uh, so these two examples sort of you know, uh, try, if we try to have a comparative perspective, we look at the Saudi case. The Saudi case is very similar, but because Saudi Arabia and exiles in particular have no history of political activism, uh, civil society, civil society is banned in Saudi Arabia, and therefore it was very difficult to uh, imagine uh, uh, an organized, institutionalized uh, political activism. What they had, and the previous cases of exiles didn't have, is social media. And so, Twitter, and now it's called X, Twitter was extremely important. And Saudis tried different uh, social media. So there were the forums initially. The forums were extremely important for jihadis, for Islamists, where they meet and talk. But also there were other liberal forums that people use uh, under pseudonyms, and they post opinions and ask for mobilization. And the Saudi exiles of this period, 2011, almost like uh, over a decade, they did use Twitter heavily. Uh, at one point, Twitter was accessible in Saudi Arabia with some degree of freedom. But with 2015, with King Salman, and then 2017, with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, Twitter was silenced completely. And it has become a curse for any activist. Uh, so this brings me to the theoretical literature on the impact of social media on exile politics. Is social media an enabling factor that promotes democracy, liberal ideas, or is it actually a, a, a regressive, oppressive tool that confirms uh, biased, radical views? The answer is actually depends who is using it. There is no, uh, I was very hesitant about social media and its liberalizing impact. And this was like you know, the CNN version of uh, Tahrir Square. Uh, like, uh, you know, uh, people are using social media, they're very modern, you know, but nobody looked at Tahrir Square and saw the forces there. And it's just a microcosm of society. But there was a hype about social media and its enabling and democratic uh, dimension. And so I found that you have the two dimensions in any kind of technology of this sort. And Saudis became what I call in the paper a Twitter nation. They are, uh, so far Twitter hasn't been banned and for good reasons because I think the authorities want to catch people through uh, Twitter 
um, and it became a trap for many activists. The sad side of this story is that uh, people use um, you know, pseudonyms and tweet, but obviously the uh, authorities are more advanced in the technology they have and they can catch them. When somebody like this is caught, put in prison, there is, it takes a long time to find their identity. And if they are not famous activists, then their story is buried in the maze of repression, basically. Uh, they're well-known ones. I'm sure you've heard of Eugène Lehoudouge, who was a very, very important activist in the uh, campaign to uh, uh, lift the ban on driving and also the campaign against the guardianship system. So everybody knows Eugène Lehoudouge. But there are hundreds and hundreds of young women who used Twitter ended up in prison simply because they tweeted or retweeted or connected with someone um, on Twitter. I mean, one personal experience, and my Twitter account was hacked in 2014. That's before Mohammed bin Salman. And immediately, um, the hackers started tweeting on my behalf uh, against different opposition groups who are here in London. So one of them called me at like 7.30. I was on the bus going to work. He said, your, your Twitter is tweeting. <laughs> uh, but I, we know that it's hacked. So um, the point I want to make is that um, the social media hype had actually become a trap, and it increased the repression in Saudi Arabia. Um, now, I mean, you cannot really um, gorge public opinion because the government was ahead of everybody else in terms of the means that they have to purchase the technology that allowed them to control social media. And um, I think after the 2018 crime, murdering Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist in the embassy, um, it became so clear that the government had actually uh, uh, built uh, what is called Twitter farms. And these are places where you could flood Twitter with misinformation or propaganda. Uh, also, it is a place where you could catch, they have the technology to know exactly who is tweeting, who is contacting, who hack their accounts, and, and they end up in prison. So, um, so the paper looks at the, uh, uh, this Twitter nation that exists. One positive element of it is it can, it's shortened distances and allowed the exiled community to communicate and know each other, albeit virtually first, but then a lot of them would be able to meet um, if they have the right travel documents um, as they are scattered all over uh, uh, several countries. But the Saudi exiles, I think with their initiative, uh, they didn't stop at being a virtual community. What is important is they exercise virtual citizenship because they are denied citizenship in their home country. So in a way, this virtual citizenship allows them to connect with others uh, with common goals, um, discuss, and also exchange ideas with the prospect of meeting later on. Uh, but they haven't stopped there. There were other initiatives to make that virtual community real. 
And uh, I look at uh, four initiatives um, that uh, had actually made a big difference. One of them is starting a human rights organization by the name of Alcus, and the founder is here, Yahya Asiri, who uh, the institution became extremely important. It's even consulted by the global international human rights organizations such as Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. Uh, they have an extended program of gathering information, uh, evidence, and also advocacy. So they travel a lot to European capitals, to the USA, in order to, to uh, talk about the repression that uh, goes on in Saudi Arabia. Another institution is Liwan London, and there's someone there who looks after that, and it's like an intellectual forum uh, whereby they invite a speaker, the speaker comes and they discuss. It's creating anchor for the exile community in order to exchange ideas. And it has not restricted its work on Saudi Arabia. Uh, in fact, they have a critical mass and they uh, attracted people from the UAE, from Oman, and from other countries in the Gulf. So it's become a focus for many young exiles who want to hear something about their homeland and discuss in a free environment. Because I remember giving a talk at one of these uh, events, and um, you would have the Islamist and the leftist and uh, people from different ideological backgrounds. They are forced to talk to each other in a civilized way, exchange ideas, and it is a, a real civil society uh, without the fear of uh, repression or arrest if you turn up. Obviously, if, if you're on a scholarship from the Saudi government, you think twice about going to Diwan London or to communicating with Al-Qus. Also, the, another uh, initiative was the Diaspora Conference, which was an annual event uh, that started uh, in uh, Rio face-to-face, -face, where a lot of exiles, especially in London, came together. There were presentations, talks, there were uh, signing documents um, to uh, uh, pledge uh, work to end repression in the country. Um, then COVID came and all the um, annual conferences over the last two, three years became virtual. People still came, talked to each other. So uh, uh, those who can um, join in by Zoom or by any other means were present. And the same kind of atmosphere. Uh, you have people from different ideological backgrounds talking together to each other. doesn't mean that they like each other, but it means that they are there to discuss. And finally, the last uh, uh, initiative that I was involved in was creating a political party. The foundation of the National Assembly Party is extremely important. It came at a time when I, I felt, together with the founding fathers uh, and mothers, uh, uh, that there was a need for the word political party in the political language of Saudi Arabia. For a long time, in Saudi Arabia, a political party was almost blasphemy, uh, that the country does not need political party. A political party is, a, uh, is, a, uh, is a divisive. Um, and uh, they give the examples of other countries where there are political parties. There is no acceptance of the idea of a political party. So 
group of uh, Saudis in exile got together and founded this party in 2021. It's like three years old now. And uh, they, the members are, again, from all over uh, the world. And its main objective is actually the pursuit of democratic change in Saudi Arabia. So it is non-sectarian, democratic, respect of human rights, calls for independent judiciary, elected government, all the democratic institutions that we are familiar with here. So these are the initiatives that have taken place so far. And it is, I think Saudis in general are beginning to learn the tools of political activism uh, in uh, a freer world and uh, host country. Because simply everything they do with this organization is impossible to do in Saudi Arabia. We have cases of people who started um, civil society organizations such as uh, Hassan, a human rights organization in Saudi Arabia. All of the founding fathers were in prison. In fact, one of them, Abdullah Hamid, died in prison. And they are serving long sentences between like 9 and 20 years, banned on travel afterwards. So my conclusion, uh, to just say, what are the prospects of the Saudi exile community? Um, like the Iraqi community, unfortunately for them, the divisions that exist at home are reproduced in exile. This is extremely interesting as a phenomenon. So for example, the Salafi Islamist groups, and they have the other, the other groups, the nationalists, democratic ones like Nas Party. They may come together, they may have a polite conversation, but it's very difficult to do joint action. So for example, also this, the divide between the Sunni and the Shia opposition in exile, they don't get together, although they may pray in the same mosque occasionally, not all the time. Uh, so basically, the exile situation does not erase the divisions that people bring from home. However, I sense that there is a new generation of Saudis who are young, uh, who are used to crossing boundaries in terms of sectarian boundaries, ethnic, regional, and uh, ideological boundaries to pursue a program of, for democracy. And this is the beginning of this process. Uh, they seem to be grouping themselves around uh, the National Assembly Party. Uh, now, in terms of long-term success of this group, um, as diaspora politics is always conducted abroad, whether there will be some kind of sympathy or sympathetic uh, uh, audience in the host countries. So for example, the USA, uh, Britain, and other, other countries. Uh, so far, um, they are tolerated, uh, but we don't expect the British government or the USA to engage with serious conversation. The international community and international relations, national interest of these countries have to change before they actually lend a hand of support to any exile community. And this is exactly what happened to the Iraqis who had been in London, for example, and in the US for like 
four decades, and nobody wanted to know about them, simply because Saddam Hussein was actually a friend of the West. Uh, he was fighting a war against Iran that the West supported through the Gulf countries, and he was playing a good role in terms of the national interest of Britain, the USA. But that changed, and therefore the exiles became important. When the national interest of Britain, the USA changed, then they went and searched for this Iraqi exile. And I do remember in London, um, before the Iraq, US invasion of Iraq, uh, there was a conference in Edgeware Road in one of the big hotels, and Scotland Yard was there surrounding the building. They invited all the Iraqi exiles under British and American umbrella to talk about the day after Saddam. And the invasion was just about to take place. So for any diasporic politics to succeed, it has to have first the, um, the internal dynamics that allow it to surpass any kind of divisive politics, such as sect, religion, uh, ideology. And the second condition is the international community and its own national interest. Without these two coming together, exile politics is interesting, it gives a homeland away from the homeland, but it's a struggle, I would say. Okay. I think that's Thank you. <laughs>
apart from the feminist movement. When the feminist movement got stronger in Saudi Arabia, it uh, bridged the divide between Islamists and the liberals, some of them, between men and women, uh, between regions, and this is why, if you remember, in 2017, one of the uh, 17-18, the feminists were put in prison, mm -hmm. and everybody was asking the question, if the regime is allowing women to drive and uh, li increasing liberalization, why are the feminists in prison? Mm -hmm. Simply because it was a social movement that was appealing to a cross-section of society in different regions, different sects, so Sunni, Shia, men and women got to support it. Uh, for a long time, it was almost like a gender war, like we women against you men. But when the new generation of feminists in Saudi Arabia started bridging these um, uh, gaps and divides, they became very dangerous. And this is why the regime put them in prison. Yeah? So now, when you're talking about the exiled community, uh, repression is beginning to unite them. But again, uh, you know, there, there are these deep-rooted divisions that is very difficult to uh, overcome. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so yeah. Well, thank you for your research, and it's, it was really interesting to read the paper and to hear your talk. I'm going to now open the floor to questions. Um, could I please ask the audience um, to introduce yourself when you ask the question, and to please keep your questions short? Yes. Hi. Um, I'm Dania Akkad, I'm a journalist with Middle East Eye. Thank you so much, Madawi. This, this talk was great. Um, I had two sort of related questions. Um, you know, if Twitter's become a trap, why why do these extreme sentences? You know, why not just kind of keep it under wraps so you can keep arresting people? Why announce to the world that this is now, you know, a red line? And um, and I wonder what you think triggered the extreme sentences over social media. And then the, the other question is, you said hundreds of, of women have also been arrested over social media. Do you think they're also getting extreme sentences? Yes, I mean, for this uh, last question, yes. I mean, they, uh, there's the case of the Saudi student in Sheffield. Uh, Sheffield, is it? Sorry? Leeds, Leeds. And uh, she's a PhD student who went to visit her family. And the, the sentence was like 35 years. Just because she tweeted, and she wasn't like tweeting against the regime, like personally attacking Muhammad bin Salman or his policies, but it's a mild kind of criticism, expressing doubts, expressing sort of other opinions, and she hasn't come out. Yeah. So that's the, the, the Twitter uh, situation. Uh, the other question is, is about how, sorry, the, why do the extreme sentences? If, if it's like a yeah. useful tool of repression yeah. where you can catch people, why announce to the world you're doing that? Why not? Well, they don't announce it. I mean, people find out about it through human rights organization. And it's never announced in the, in the local press that, oh, we've caught someone. And so, yeah, we, we find out because of friends of friends and mm -hmm. family. Sometimes the families don't want to mention that their daughter has been in prison simply because they worry that the sentence will be worse or she'll be tortured, so they keep quiet. And now there's, I think, I've tried to encourage people to talk 
when their daughter or their wife, whatever, or son is, is put in prison. But the uncertainty of what happens next makes people keep quiet and think like we could use some informal channels to find out about our son or our daughter. So, um, yeah, I mean, even the, the imprisonment of women is very, very unusual in a country like Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, I don't remember women being imprisoned in such a big number. Okay, hi, Madari. Jeroen Gunning, visiting professor here, but also my day job is on the other side of King's College. Yeah. Um, my ex-college. Yes, <laughs> I know we share that. Yeah. Um, two questions, really interesting. Two questions. One is, you mentioned this kind of the, the, the change in political opportunity structure for the Iraqi exile from, from being ignored by governments and being sort of sought out. And then you, you said a little bit about civil society organizations like Human Rights Watch, etc. Can you say a bit more about how Saudi exiles are, are sort of, um, managing to, to mobilize or, or, or get help from civil society organizations in their, in their kind of host countries? Yeah. Because that's not, not government, but civil sort of, sort of society. And the other thing is, um, I know, for example, uh, in, in, in Egypt, but also in the past Iraq, um, the states tried to, uh, to extend their, their, uh, their repression abroad. And I just wanted to, if, I don't know if you can talk about it, but, but uh, how, how safe are Saudis outside Saudi in some ways? Yes, I mean, it's a very good question. Um, so in, in terms of um, how they uh, relate to the host society, um, they have very strong uh, connections with human rights organizations and with the media in the West. So after 2018, I don't remember reading an article in the New York Times or the Guardian or the Times without mentioning a Saudi exile which is interesting. Uh, so now their voices are reaching a wider audience through Western media. Obviously, the Arab media is a no-go area because even like Al Jazeera used to invite the Saudi exiles um, to comment on Saudi affairs. But after 2014, from 2014 until the reconciliation with Qatar, that stopped. So and then with the with the Saudi and UAE control over Arab media now, it's impossible for a Saudi to be invited to any of the mainstream, uh, popular uh, news channels and, and, and media. Uh, so the, the achievement, I think, is that no journalist today in London or in Washington would write an article without consulting a Saudi exile. Uh, and having uh, uh, two or three sentences from them. Simply because these journalists, they go to Saudi Arabia and they are presented with the official narrative and they feel they cannot just talk about that. Their movement, their access to the country is limited and restricted. Uh, they are taken to see the concerts, the stadium, the football, the tourist destination, but you, any Saudi who talks to a journalist uh, openly with their name, they will be arrested straight away. And this happened to my colleague, who was actually invited to Adesir, uh, Hatun al-Fasi, who uh, uh, talked to the economist. Uh, just in 2017, she was put in prison. Eugène uh, Vedloul, as well, uh, uh, gave an interview to the economist correspondent in Saudi Arabia. She was put in prison. So it's very difficult. And 
and I think it's, a, it's an achievement that they are now forcing their voice and becoming mainstream. Uh, so with respect to your uh, second question about uh, the Iraqis and um, uh, the exiles and how... Well, so, so uh, uh, the, the Saudi regime is also exporting yes. its, 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 its yes. actual well, repression, repression outside. Does. You know, I mean, the extreme case was 2018 yeah. with Khashoggi, but uh, they try their best to intimidate exiles here in London. So I don't know if you remember in 1996, I think during John Major's uh, uh, premiership, the Saudi government put pressure on uh, Britain to expel him to the Dominican uh, Republic. And he went to the court in London, and the court said that it's illegal. You're not going to be sent to the Dominican. So they put pressure on, on uh, governments not to welcome them, and if possible, deport them. Uh, so that's, that's uh, common in terms of intimidation, hacking of phones. That's very common. I don't know if you are aware of the Israeli Pegasus. Uh, technology that has been hacked. I mean, Yahya's telephone was hacked. There was an attempt on my phone. Others, uh, even like Western journalists, were targeted. Uh, so there is the technology side, which is intimidating. You're always in fear that your phone is going to be hacked. Um, yeah. Um, I'm very much. So maybe we'll take two at a time. Okay. So one and two, and then um, I'll come back to you. Yes, please. Uh, Omar, um, medical professional, um, surrounded by passing bodies, uh, no experience in politics. Um, you seem to describe what, it, from the outside, I'm Lebanese originally, so it seems like there's a perception of Saudi Arabia changing, oh my god, what's happening, liberalization of society, like, and one would expect from the outside to think, oh, you can just be loving this guy. But then I'm seeing from the outside, this is also very sort of at the surface and underneath it all, still very sort of strict. Um, how is he perceived among the population there in terms of the youth, um, in terms of popularity? And conversely, are the older generations, is there a growing dissenting conservative voice that is looking at what's happening in Saudi Arabia in the name of economic development? and trying to future-proof the country, are there people out there who are older generations that are basically thinking, what is this guy doing? Mm. And at some point, we need to take him out. Interesting questions. Yeah. Let me take these questions <coughs> and then I'll turn to you. Yes, please. Uh, hi, my name is Alia. Uh, thank you for the talk. I was um, a research assistant in the LSE Media and Communications Department. Uh, my question is that um, you mentioned that organizations in the West that uh, have Saudi exiles are often divided, but that's more in terms of uh, national issues within Saudi Arabia. But um, Saudi Arabia has an important role um, externally as well in the Middle East. So I wanted to know whether this divide is often also um, in terms of Saudi's role externally, in terms of um, its role maybe in Yemen or um, maybe similarly to what's going on in Gaza now and um, its role there. So I just wanted to know if, uh, yeah, from your perspective, if there's also a divide uh, within these issues. Thank you so much. Uh, 
Um, yes, well, obviously there is this liberalization, and if you look at the media, you see that there are thousands of young men and women in the streets enjoying themselves, dancing, going to concerts, theater, cinema, etc. But uh, in order to really know exactly what's happening in the country, you have to look at the number of people arrested during these events. <laughs> so um, uh, it is impossible to uh, criticize any of this without going to prison in Saudi Arabia now. There is no uh, even like small space where you could be critical. Um, and the people you see enjoying themselves, they are enjoying themselves. I mean, let's not forget that <coughs> as a country that had the youth of the country had been deprived of popular culture, of the fun that any young person in the surrounding region, let alone in the West, would enjoy. So a concert, um, dancing in the street, appealed to some young people. Uh, yes, in terms of the older generation, I see them as retreating from this public sphere that is no longer theirs. Um, but you talk to women, they are, some of them are enjoying the freedom, they're enjoying the ability to drive. Uh, if you are a, a, a teacher in Saudi Arabia, on a limited salary, they're not very high salaries. In the past, you used to have to hire a driver. Now you could drive yourself to your job, and you could run errands, and some people are benefiting from that. But if you look at the repression that is taking place with that, one wonders whether it's worth it. You know? And the people who are repressed, not because they're against uh, a concert or theater or cinema, simply they are against certain kind of fundamental issues. They want the right to organize. They want the right to have a say in what concert comes, which singer is invited. They want uh, to know where the money is going, given that they are subjected to taxes now. Uh, there are lots of economic changes that have taken place that may have actually made their life worse in terms of their salaries being limited and the cost of living is very high. Um, Saudi Arabia's like civil servants, who are probably 70% of the population, their salaries are the worst in the Gulf region, apart probably from Oman. Uh, they're much lower than the UAE, Qatar, and, uh, and other places. So the older generation, the conservative, if you want, they feel probably that this is no longer a country they recognize, and they've retreated because they cannot express themselves, and they're not allowed. Uh, yes, in terms of the, the importance of Saudi Arabia, yes, it's extremely important in the region. Um, but in terms of Saudi engagement with other issues, so for example, the war in Yemen, it's impossible to criticize it at the time and even now. Uh, it was used as a national propaganda. So and, you know, making everybody uh, behind the crown prince as the new warrior who's gonna deliver that victory, which never happened. But there was no discussion uh, of, uh, of the Yemen war, why it happened, how it's gonna end, has it ended. Um, so the, it, it was impossible. And we do hear about soldiers or people in the military defecting because they refused the, the Yemen war or object to it. In terms of Gaza, the same thing. Uh, so, at the moment, um, 
I don't know if you followed the news about what's happening in Saudi Arabia. You know, like two or three weeks ago, uh, the Crown Prince gave an interview to Fox News when he announced that they are like so short of normalization with Israel, it's going to happen, but you know, just like minor things to, to overcome problems. Uh, but with suddenly, with the public opinion in Saudi Arabia and around Saudi Arabia being so pro Gaza, there had been some kind of, not changes I would say, but making some noises to appease the people who are very angry about it. And so on Friday uh, last week, they allowed the imam of the mosque of Mecca to supplicate for the people of Gaza and the Palestinians. May God uh, protect them, etc., destroy their enemies. And this was televised. So it was good, good PR that this is what we're doing. You know, we allow this to happen. Um, but Saudis themselves, there is a group of Saudis who have endorsed this Saudi Arabia first. And they are anti-Palestinian and anti-Palestinian cause. They think that it has nothing to do with them and it's not something that they have to be engaged with. Actually, there was one tweet from one of the editors of um, ex-editor of Sharq al-Awsad, which is a Saudi newspaper, um, which he says uh, there were calls, again, on Twitter that Saudi Arabia should use the oil weapon and put pressure on the West and Israel to stop this war. And uh, he tweeted, he said, oh, this is not our war. We didn't start it. Why do you want us to, dr to be dragged in, in it? So th there is a group of that, and this is basically the mouthpiece of the regime. That's what they want people to accept, that this is not our war, it's their war, and we are definitely not going to jeopardize our national interest and our oil in the service of Gaza. But at the popular level, there is quite a lot of support for us. And remember, there are generations who lived on this sort of Palestinian cause all their life. Uh, and at one point, it was like promoted by the government. It was a government policy to chant. And in 1948, they had what was called the Jihadi festivals, 1948. And the Jihadi festivals were meant to raise uh, money and also recruitment to fight in 1948. Uh, then 1973, you know, with King Faisal wanting to have the oil embargo to support the Palestinians, etc. So it's very difficult for this generation to erase Palestine from their consciousness. And it stays, and it is expressed on, on social media now. Mindful of time, I'm going to go a little five, five minutes over. So I'm going to take the last two questions. I have one and two. out to cross-section of yeah. society and then also about the patterns of how diaspora groups in how the diaspora groups have you know brought the, the dynamics of home with them. 
question is mainly about whether are there other patterns across <coughs> generations of diaspora that you've noticed, and specifically post 2011, there's been a massive transnational cooperation between different Arab youth, specifically who have all left and found each other in places like Berlin, in New York, and in London. Um, and at least in Berlin, I've noticed there's not much presence for young people from the Gulf in yeah. these circles, whether in artist circles, activist circles, academic circles, they don't take part along with all the other groups. Um, do you have anything to say? Yes, definitely. visiting professor of the Middle East Center. Um, this has been a, a very informative talk and a fascinating one. Thank you very much for that. Uh, I'm coming at what you said a little from the West because I work on North Africa and the Maghreb, and in particular Algeria. I've been researching a book on the Hirak in Algeria, but I also have long been interested in the Algerian diaspora, so I found what you had to say about the successive phases in the Saudi diaspora very interesting indeed. Um, I want to bring the discussion back to the point you made about the National Assembly Party. I thought this was particularly fascinating. Uh, and let, let me just briefly say why. You're making an issue of the ban on parties, and therefore you're sort of braving the regime's uh, condemnation of anything that provokes fitna. Uh, and that's a, a, a defiant thing to do, I think a necessary thing to do in the long run. But you're also focusing on the question of the legislature, the National Assembly. And for example, the reason why I think that's particularly interesting is that the people in Tahrir Square never made an issue of the legislature. The force in Egypt that would have proposals for expanding the role of parliament was the Muslim Brothers. And this leads me to think about the problem of the relationship between Salafi and secularists within the Saudi diaspora, because by God, that, that uh, uh, face-off between Salafis and Secularists has been has doomed movements in other countries. It, it's uh, very greatly damaged the Tunisian Revolution. It's been a huge problem in Algeria. It's been a problem, of course, in Egypt as well. And I'm wondering whether, given that uh, this movement uh, is raising the question of the National Assembly and Fitna, is it possible for it to introduce ideas that previously had been the preserve of the Islamic modernism rather than the Hanbali-oriented Salafi tradition? Uh, and uh, is it possible for Saudi secularists to recognize the virtue of what Islamic modernists have to say about tolerance? Because that could be the common ground on which a united movement of radical reform could be built. That's my question. Sorry to have taken some No worries. Very interesting question. Yeah. Very so we've got two questions. Yes, Salma. Um, uh, there is a lot of um, uh, cross-country intermingling in the West, especially among the youth, 2011. So within the Saudi diaspora, we find that uh, they have built bridges with others, um, Egyptians, Tunisians. So for example, to go back to the Nas party, especially when there are uh, lectures organized online, we have Egyptian uh, activists, Tunisian President Marzouki, ex-president, uh, and many others who would join in. So I think 
the party sees itself as fitting in within the, Arab, the general Arab world of democratic forces. And, and there are uh, ways of communicating with them and supporting each other. So that's very, very clear. And as I said, mentioned, UN London, for example, attracts a lot of uh, uh, people from the UAE, from uh, Bahrain, um, from Oman, uh, simply because they realize that there is something about a critical mass. Yeah? And sometimes the demands are exactly the same. They're suffering from the same repression, um, and they're demanding the same uh, thing. Uh, opening up of the, of the public sphere, uh, organizing civil society, debating in a free environment. Also, what is interesting in all diasporas, I think, is if you read the literature you know, about them and how they see themselves, you have the old generation, and then you have the young ones. And sometimes, you know, the uh, old ones reach out to the young ones in, because they have the youth, they have the activism. And this is exactly what uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist, did when he arrived in Washington. He reached out to another exile, Omar uh, Zahrani. Um, and uh, they wanted to work together because they have different audiences. Omar has got like you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of followers on YouTube, and he talks to the youth. Uh, whereas Jamal Khashoggi talks to his age group, perhaps. And therefore, Exiles tend to sometimes bridge the gap, especially you know, between the youth and, and the older generation. But sometimes it can backfire. It can actually be detrimental to any kind of joint activity because you have the old guards are not ready to let go. <laughs> and they want to keep the, you know, holding the rope. Um, Yes, you, I mean, what you say is extremely interesting and uh, uh, relevant. Um, yes, the NAS, the National Assembly Party, uh, its, its first manifesto was to create a parliament, uh, to have an elected government, to, the, to introduce the word democracy, which was regarded as kufr, blasphemy, in the context of Saudi Arabia. It, it, for the majority of Saudis, they were indoctrinated that democracy means that you're going to be having homosexuals running the country. You are going to have loose women everywhere. You have no morality. So this is the language that democracy was described in from the mosques, in the pamphlets, uh, in, in, uh, the in the sermons, the literature that that the government wanted to spread by either uh, pro-government Islamists or by the Islamists themselves. I mean, you know, the Islamists contributed, some of them, not the ones you are talking about. Um, and I, I did uh, one of the books that you mentioned, Mutant Modernist. It's about the trend within the Islamic tradition that went beyond what the Salafis allowed to, to say about democracy, and in fact, Quite a lot of them call for democracy uh, without being <coughs> complete uh, members of the Muslim Brotherhood. They were uh, an intellectual Islamic trend that tried to find solutions uh, using modern language but anchoring political change in an Islamic context. 
Inside, inside Saudi Arabia. Inside Saudi Arabia. And you know, they're well known. So one of them is unfortunately in prison, Sheikh Salman Lauda, who wrote about how, uh, what is the role of Sharia in a democracy? Do you impose it by force or you don't? And there's quite a lot of theorizing uh, about how uh, after revolutions, he was talking about Egypt, but it's close to home, and that's why he's in prison. You can, uh, can remain faithful to your Islamic tradition, but have democracy. Right. So in terms of the conflict between Salafis and secularists, yes, it exists in, for example, Nas party, they um, had aspired to have members, founding members, who were part of the, I wouldn't say the, the hard Salafi groups, but the Islamists. And it did work for a while, but they felt uncomfortable with, uh, for example, the, uh, the um, National Assembly Party uh, rejects death, the death penalty, right? And this is like a taboo in any Islamic system, like you don't. But we found a way of saying that if the judiciary is not independent, then we have suspension of the death penalty. We don't reject it. It's there, but we can't apply it because the judiciary is not um, independent, and it is just like following the rule of whatever the government wants. Uh, on other issues, for example, so Nas Party gets interrogated about con contentious issues, not about the Constitution, not about whether we want a constitutional monarchy or a republic. We get interrogated about what do we think of gays, gay marriage, what do we uh, think about people who renounce their religion? So, and quite a lot of these questions come from uh, government sources that want to implicate us in some kind of, Im or make us immoral, the immoral political party, because we uh, uh, don't interfere in what people do in their bedrooms, or uh, in terms of imposing certain kind of morality on people. Uh, we allow people to decide for themselves. And therefore, the conflict is there, but I have a feeling that, you know, there is this sort of uh, fascination with the Senate and what they do, simply because the message is so extreme in, in all sorts of contexts. Um, but I think their appeal has declined uh, massively. This doesn't mean that they disappeared, it may have come back, but at the moment, quite a lot of the youth population is really beyond that. Thank you. Um, before I ask the audience to find uh, our wonderful speaker, um, just to mention two other upcoming events organized by the Middle East Center. So on Tuesday, 24th of October, there will be a book launch of Broken Bonds, The Existential Crisis of Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood 2013 to 2022. And then on Thursday, the 9th of November, there will be a book launch of the latest English, English translation of Hassan Kanafani's The Revolution of 1936 to 1939 in Palestine. So please do join. And please join me in thanking our wonderful speaker.